0: good morning again oceanside sanctuary it is good to gather with you here in this space on a sunday morning for our sunday gathering we continue to worship at a distance in order to practice uh, good social distancing and make sure that we aren't contributing to the spread of the coronavirus in our community so we are hoping that today you will pop into the comments that you will say hello Uh, that you'll greet each other, that you'll encourage each other. We want to have as much connection as we can, even though we are at a distance from each other and worshiping across Facebook and YouTube. So today, I want to invite you to do that. I want to ask that you would just pop into the comments and really encourage each other and greet each other and share pictures of your communion with each other, Uh, share pictures of your smiling faces so that we can all uh, get that sense of being connected again. Well, today we're going to jump into our final session on my American God series, where we've been talking about the idols that we tend to worship in the church instead of God. And so far, we've talked about nationalism, the tendency for us to conflate our Christianity with our citizenship in the United States and equate those two things. We've also talked about racism, which is, of course, a subject that has exploded in our social consciousness yet again uh, with the killing, of the high profile killings of uh, folks like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And of course, we've also talked about now classism. Last week, we talked about our tendency to worship the divisions of class amongst us by who has more and who has less. And today, what I want to do is jump into our final topic that I think is really at the heart of all of these topics. So I want to invite you to join with me today. If you have your Bibles, now would be a good time to grab them and uh, you know, get yourself settled and settle your hearts, settle your minds, and let's take a look at what Scripture has to say about our final topic, which is authoritarianism. Now before we jump into that, I just want to invite you to pray with me and ask God to really meet us this morning in our time of worship god we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather today and we ask that as we open up scripture as we read from the words of the old testament and the new testament we ask lord that you would guide us that you would shine a light on our own hearts that you would shine a light on our own community here in the oceanside sanctuary that you shine a light on Uh, the communities and neighborhoods and workplaces and schools that we exist in and engage in relationships with others in. We ask that you would teach us to be people of love and that we would not become people who are uh, seeking to control or seeking to uh, dictate to others how they should think or live or be. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start today by just sharing with you a passage from John chapter 15. And this is going to be one of two main passages that I share with you today. I want to share this because I think that it's deeply revealing for the kind of faith that we have as people who follow Christ and also reveals a contrast, a really powerful contrast, With much of what we see in the world and I think especially what we are seeing in the world today in response to a lot of the unrest that we are experiencing in our communities around issues like nationalism and racism and class and so if you have your Bible you can turn with me to John chapter 15 I'm gonna be reading from uh, verse 15 especially but I'm gonna start back a little bit earlier in verse 12 and if you don't have your bible that's okay we'll just put this passage right up on the screen this is of course jesus speaking john chapter 15 verse 12 jesus says this to his followers he says this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you no one has greater love than this but to lay down his life for his friends you are my friends if you do what i command you I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my master. Now, this is an extraordinary passage, I think, because Christ, of course, Uh, in the Christian tradition, is the perfect revelation, the embodiment of God. And what we have here is that revelation of God, that embodiment of God, essentially saying to us, My commandment to you is that you love each other, and that love extends so deeply that I will now call you my friend, not just my servant. Now, I think this is especially revealing Because we have a tendency, I think, in Christianity and in religion in general to see God and our relationship with God in authoritarian terms. And by authoritarian, of course, what I mean is strict obedience to rules or laws. In fact, I think that that's sort of our default posture in the church. And in order to reveal that, I just want to ask that you turn real quickly back to the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 verse 4 is probably the most famous uh, Old Testament passage of all time. Probably the most famous Jewish passage of all time. We see it right there in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20 verse 4. And this is, of course, the first of the Ten Commandments. And, And here's what that says. Exodus 20 verse 4. God says, through Moses, You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now this is, of course, the first commandment, and many theologians have pointed out that it's the that it, it, it's sort of the central uh, teaching of the jewish faith that there is one god that unites all of creation that unites all of humanity and that our sole duty as created beings is to place that god at the center of our lives to order our lives around that god this was of course a sort of a revolutionary teaching at the time because up to this point it was believed in a very pagan way that there was sort of a god for everything and of course different cultures and different places in different times in human history have had different versions of that kind of you know multiple god kind of paganism uh where there was sort of a haunted earth there's a god for the the trees and a god for the rivers and a god for the oceans and a god for the skies and this reflects this kind of multi-tiered view of the universe that ancient people had. And what you have sort of invading that uh, kind of haunted vision of the world where you had to constantly appease those gods at every turn in order just to survive, in order to see your crops grow, in order to see your family grow, in order for you to be able to feed yourselves and be able to get by. What we see inserted into that kind of Chaotic, violent, competitive worldview is instead this Hebrew vision of one God who unifies all of life. One God who brings it all together. And that one God is saying that life is not chaotic, life is not necessarily competitive or violent, but rather life is good. This is one of the revolutionary ideas of the book of Genesis, that the created order is good and that we were made for a good life. And here in Exodus chapter 20, we have that God saying, worship me and me alone. And, of course, we tend to think of that God as being an authoritarian God, a God who uh, demands strict obedience at all costs. But it's important, I think, to have a little bit of backstory, a little bit of cultural understanding around this practice of idolatry. Because when, when God says there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, you shall have no carved or graven images of me, what God is referring to is this pagan practice of taking you know, a chunk of wood or a piece of stone uh, or, or maybe a pole, a stick of wood, and erecting it or creating a monolith, something that has the image of the God that you happen to worship. And so whether it's you know, the God of the rain or the God of the sun or the God of the soil or the God of the sea, whatever it might be, The ancient pagan belief was that if you could carve an image of that God, a likeness of that God, then you essentially trap that God in that image. You capture that God's spirit, that God inhabits that image, inhabits that idol in a way that allows that God then to be contained by you, that allows that God to be controlled by you, allows that God to be at your beck and call. And so it's important for us to understand that, that God's initial forbidding of God's people to create an image, to create an idol to worship God, is not so much because that God is, you know, an ego maniacal dictator in the sky who wants to be the center of all of our attention. That God instead is trying to get these ancient people who are following him to understand that that God can't be controlled. That God can't be contained. And so this prohibition against idolatry is first and foremost a way for God to demonstrate God's own freedom from our authoritarian tendencies towards God. And and that's something that I think we often don't think about, but you know, Jesus reinforces this idea This idea that God is utterly, completely, and wildly free from our tendency to want to control God. Jesus says, of course, in a famous passage, uh, the Spirit of God is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming. You don't know where it's going, but you can see its effects. And what Jesus is really saying there is, you know, you don't get to decide what God is doing and where God is going and what God is shifting or shaping or changing in the world. God is God's own person. God is God's own God. And it sort of harkens back to God's revelation to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asks God, what's your name? And God refuses to give Moses a name. Instead, God says, I am that I am. Meaning this God that Moses has encountered in this crazy moment around this burning bush is a God that exists by God's own self and cannot be contained or controlled. In fact, one of the reasons why God won't give Moses a name is because much like carving an idol, in the ancient world, another way to control a God, another way to believe that you could sort of coerce or manipulate a God, was to know that God's name. If you knew that God's name, then you could sort of magically, through your incantations, through your carefully crafted spells and prayers, you could make that God do your bidding. And so what we have is the ancient God of the Hebrews refusing to give God's name because that God doesn't want to give Moses the false impression that he can be controlled by Moses. You know, when my kids were very little, Uh, We used to love watching that old Disney animated movie, Aladdin. And you know, I could literally sing you every single lyric to the entire movie of Aladdin because I've seen it over and over and over again. And you all know the story of Aladdin. Aladdin is this Middle Eastern story that comes from the ancient world where a young street rat named Aladdin who has no money, has no power, has no influence, has no pedigree finds this nasty old lamp and in the attempt to clean it, to polish it up, discovers that there is a godlike being living inside. Inside this lamp and the godlike being comes out at his beck and call and is indebted to Aladdin, and therefore Aladdin can control this god and ask for whatever wishes he wants. I think if you think about it, it's easy to understand why that story is so captivating, why that story is so literally powerful, because of course, we often feel powerless. We live in a world where terrible things happen all the time, where we feel like we don't have enough money. We feel like we can't quite make ends meet. We feel like we're constantly subjected to the judgments and the unrealistic expectations of people that we work for or people that we live near or people that we go to church with. And of course, this is how children feel too. You know, Children are, in many cases, the least powerful among us. And so as children, when we are children, we love these kinds of stories. We love stories about magic and power and, and the ability to cast spells and the ability to conjure up spirits and the ability to exert power in a divine way because the human existence is an existence of weakness and powerlessness. But, you know, God is not our genie. We are not Aladdin. And, you know, you can tell a toxic, dysfunctional religious tradition or a toxic, dysfunctional church or a toxic, dysfunctional spiritual community when that community tries to control God. And there are a lot of churches and a lot of Christian books and a lot of Christian beliefs that do exactly that, that believe that if you just say the right prayer in the right kind of way or if you can uh, pray in a secret language or if you can know the right beliefs and you can repeat them in an acceptable way, then finally you can have the blessing of God. But that is not faith. That is magic. And magic is really nothing more than an attempt to be in control of God and God's divine spirit. But Jesus reveals that God cannot be controlled, that God is a wild and free spirit who goes and, uh, and does uh, and acts and, 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 and acts upon the world in ways that we really can't control. It's not our job to try to contain or control God. And so that's really what idolatry is all about. That's what we see here in Exodus chapter 20, that idolatry has as its heart this desire to contain and control God so that we can guarantee the things that we want. But I think that Jesus, in the passage I began with in John chapter 15, reveals a second aspect about idolatry that is equally true, and I think in many cases equally important, and that is this that not only can god not be controlled not only is idolatry essentially at the heart of our desire to control god but i think jesus also reveals that that god who can't be controlled also doesn't want to control us that being part of a religion or being part of a spiritual tradition definitely being part of the christian tradition is not supposed to be about worshiping a God who is constantly trying to control you or bully you or threaten you so that you will do what that God wants. And Jesus reveals that sort of radical difference in this very passage going back to John chapter 15. Again, in verse 15, he says, I do not call you servants any longer because the servant doesn't know what the master's doing. But I've called you friends. Because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. Jesus takes this radical departure from a kind of authoritarian religion and says, no, that's not what it's about. What we're doing here is we are following after the utterly free, utterly wild, and completely good Spirit of God. And as we do... We are bringing you in, not as servants, not as puppets, not as people to be whimsically controlled or tortured or played with by some capricious God in the sky, no, you are being included in the life of God as friends, as people who have a kind of mutual relationship with God. And I think we really struggle with this idea. I think that we have such a tendency to think that God is an authoritarian, that we are constantly looking for the new rules or the new laws that we have to follow. And so, you know, we, we remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says things like, you know, you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say you should love your enemy, right? We hear that teaching from Jesus and instead of hearing an invitation into a conversation about how to live a life of love and sacrifice for those who are in need, we hear a new law. We hear that God requires me to love my enemy, and if I don't love my enemy, then there is a threat that's coming along. And you know, this is, I think, the second tendency for the church to dip into the idolatry of authoritarianism. When we discover that God can't be controlled, when we discover that all the right prayers and the right creeds and the right incantations and the right spells actually don't Uh, put God under our thumb, then the next thing we do is the next best thing, and that is we take religion and we try to use it to control people. We take those those constructs, those incredibly powerful stories of religion, we take the, the provocative and powerful teachings of Jesus and we try to use them to control you. We try to use them to bully you. We try to use them to coerce and manipulate you into doing what we want you to do. But what Jesus reveals here is that a relationship with God has nothing to do with authoritarian control of our lives, that it has to do with love. In fact, Paul in Galatians chapter five verse one goes so far as to say, not only is God utterly and completely free, but Paul in Galatians five one says, You, when you are followers of Christ, are utterly and completely free. He says it this way: He says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that liberation, being liberated from oppression and bondage and constraints, both negatively and positively, is the beating heart of Christianity because it is also the beating heart of Judaism. And Paul just flatly says that the entire reason that Christ set you free, Christ set me free, why Christ sets everybody free, is not so that we can be re-enslaved again to a set of laws or or constructs, or ideas that control and manipulate us. No, Paul says we have been set free so that we can be free. Now imagine that. Imagine that the Christian tradition is a tradition where God is completely and utterly free and good, and we are completely, utterly free and good. And so the question is, why would a free God and a free humanity come together to work together and cooperate if there isn't a threat behind it, if there isn't an authoritarian dictator behind it? Why in the world would we come together and work together in order to bring good in this world? Jesus says the answer to that question is love. That we come together because God deeply loves us and we deeply love God. And free people, utterly free persons, including God, Enter into relationships of mutual care and mutual submission and mutual goodness out of love. And that, by the way, that idea is in the Ten Commandments. It's right there in that commandment to not worship idols. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses reveals to us, towards the end of that initial commandment to not make idols, God says that he shows steadfast love. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. God shows steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. So right there in the Ten Commandments, early in this revelation that God is different than those uh, pagan gods who can be controlled or manipulated or coerced for selfish ends. God says, no, no, that's not me. I'm the God who you follow because you deeply love, because I deeply love you, and we are here for your good. We are f- here for the good of all people. We are here for the good of the earth. Now, what's interesting about this to me is that Paul later in the book of Ephesians paints a picture that reflects and echoes the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 when he reveals that together as a church, that our whole job as humans, as created human beings, is to do the very thing that we try to do when we erect idols. That job is to contain the Spirit of God. So rather than trying to contain God and control and manipulate God with idols, our job is to enter into a love relationship with God so that Paul in Ephesians chapter uh, 2 verses 22 says, we can become that living temple, that living building that comes together in which God dwells by God's spirit. And so the thing that we were after with idolatry, which is power and control and coercion for our own goods, we let that idolatry go. We let that authoritarianism go. We let that desire to be in charge go. And in doing so, we become a living structure, a living temple, a living house that God then willingly enters so that we can enter into a loving mutual existence with God, cooperating with God's good purposes in the world. Now, that I think is a much better gospel, a much better opportunity than the temptation to be in control, the temptation to wield power for our own purposes, our own ends. And and it brings up an interesting uh, possibility, and that is that God has invited us into that kind of relationship with Him, that it's a love relationship that involves mutual love, mutual concern, mutual inclusion into the work that God is doing in the world. And that, I would say, of course, is the heart of the gospel, that invitation into that encounter with God. And so today is the last uh, session in our American God series, but what I'd like to do next over the next several weeks on Sunday mornings is I would like us to explore what that encounter with God looks like in scripture. So for the next few weeks, We're gonna enter into a new teaching series that I'm calling Encountering God. And we're gonna begin to unpack some of the stories in scripture that illustrate what it looks like when we have this wild, free, and radical encounter with the Spirit of God that then liberates us to be in relationship with God. I think that's a much better alternative to the authoritarian, competitive games that we play with each other and with God as a form of idolatry, even in the church. I also want to invite you uh, to to check out my last conversation. Uh, Some of you know that I have been posting a series of conversations in this particular teaching series, American Gods, where I pull together some clergy colleagues, some friends of mine, and we have conversations about these topics. And today we are releasing our fourth and final conversation in that series where we talk about authoritarianism in the church and how there is a temptation for us to replace a genuine, loving, worshipful relationship with God with a form of authoritarianism and control. So i want to invite you to check out that if you're interested in learning more, if you're interested in peeking over our shoulder and hearing a little bit more talk about how this is a temptation and a danger in the church. I want to wish you well. I hope that you are staying safe and staying healthy at home and invite you just to join with me in a word of prayer as we close our worship today and ask God to go with us in our lives. Father, we just thank you for today. Holy Spirit, we are grateful for the work that you're doing. Christ, we come before you this morning and we worship you and proclaim that you are the center of our lives. You're the center of our concerns that we our organizing our lives around you and your teachings and your revelation of who God really is and how we can encounter God in our lives. I pray that you would go with us today, that wherever we might be, whether we're at home uh, or whether we might be at work, uh, working jobs in the midst of a global pandemic, I ask that you would keep us healthy, that you keep us safe, Ask that you'd keep us connected both to you and to each other in ways that are good and meaningful and empower us to live out the gospel in our lives each day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.